What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that y'all joined today. Uh, We're continuing on headstrong into Ephesians 4. We're actually making some headway. We're getting through like four verses today, and I couldn't be more proud of myself. (laughs) Um, So before we hop into it real quick, if y'all wouldn't mind sharing this with your friends and family, if you haven't already, um, there's links in the description to all the various social medias link to the podcast if you want to ever get in contact if you want to just see what my life is like or if you ever have any questions or anything along those lines you can always reach out i'd love to talk with y'all and get to know y'all um and if you want to if you have the desire to uh give to this podcast ministry that we're doing there's also a link in the description as well but we're continuing on into ephesians 4 and paul is just getting into some of the meat of kind of the main focus for the latter half of this letter, which is setting a foundation that will help aid the new body of Christ from being swayed and from being deceived by false teachings and people that want to tear apart the thing that Christ has unified. Paul pointed out uh, in the first few chapters of Ephesians that Between the Jews and the Gentiles, there was some division. There was dividing walls, things like circumcision, um, the adherence to the Torah and its laws and festivals. And Paul points out beautifully that, hey, before Christ, we were all riddled with sin. We just ran with the transgression and the desires that we had in our heart, and we became an enemy of God. But because of Christ, we no longer have to worry about living in sin. We, we have a freedom, we have a grace that has been given to us. And because of that grace, we are expected to act in accordance to God's will. And so applying this to the Jews and the Gentiles at this time, they were dividing because of things like circumcision that was tied to the law. And Paul says, look, when Christ died on the cross, that completely broke down this wall of hostility that was between the Jew and the Gentile because of Christ. The Gentiles can now be called citizens of God's kingdom. They can now take part in the promises that you Israelites received far before Christ came on the scene. Paul's making it very clear that, hey, uh, we're all in this together now. And because of that, and because you have two different groups that come from completely different backgrounds, completely different religious teachings, they both have their own kind of ways that they're honoring God in a special way. And there is going to be real concern and real attacks that will get, uh, that will be sent forth to the church then and today that are going to try and cause division that will break apart this unity that Christ gave us an option to take part in. So what Paul is telling us here, starting in verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 4, he's telling us that Christ gave some certain people to the church, a certain group of people with certain skill sets and uh, appointed roles of leadership. And their sole purpose, their sole mission is to protect, guide, and lead the body of Christ. And so we're going to get into that today. We're going to look at who these people are, how exactly they operate, and why it is so important, not only to the 
believers that Paul is writing to, but also to us today. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going through verse 11 down to verse 14. Paul says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All right, so like we always do, let's break this down verse by verse and see what's going on here. So verse 11, he says, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, depending on your tradition that you grew up in, depending on the denomination that you take part in or lack thereof, you may have certain views on what exactly these leadership roles that Christ has appointed, how they operate today. Uh, there are some who believe that there are still apostles today that are appointed. There are some that believe that there are still prophets. Uh, most all of us, regardless, would still believe that there are still evangelists, there's still shepherds, or that often gets translated as pastors and teachers. Uh, but there are other denominations and, and people within the body of Christ that believe that the apostles, that they were the original 12, and that role was never a role that was supposed to be passed down. Uh, they believe with prophecy. Some may believe that prophecy is still alive and active today on a very common basis. Some believe that prophecy is still a gift that maybe is not as common as a lot of people say and believe and try and practice. And there's others who believe that uh, prophecy and a lot of the spiritual gifts ceased at some point in the early church. Uh, I'm not going to be touching on those issues today simply because that would take multiple episodes if I'm going to properly and responsibly break down each of those viewpoints, talk about why they believe what they believe, talk about the evidence they present, talk about the biblical evidence they present, and then talk about the ramifications of those views. Irregardless, one thing we can point out is this, that Paul says that all of these were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And once again, Paul points out these important leaders, right? He, he gives them to the church as a gift. And remember how Paul thinks about the, the church in this context. Paul's not thinking about the church as a, a building that you go and worship at. He's not even thinking about it just as a group of believers that are gathering together. Paul describes at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 the church as the new temple and God's dwelling place. So this will play an important role with how important uh, the leadership roles in verse 11 are presented. So these gifts that have been given, they play a crucial role in the church's ability to stay pure and effective in its commission to live like Christ. These gifts are exactly as they're stated, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. 
And although there may be disagreements on how these roles apply today, at least for the first two out of that set, uh, we can agree that these roles were given with one goal in mind, a very important goal, and that is to make sure that the body of Christ, the new temple, the new dwelling place of God, is kept in order and is flourishing. So now we need to understand something. What does it mean to be a saint? Because Paul says that, hey, they're given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And often from various sects of Christianity, we hear about saints in kind of a, a special, a specific, holy individual type unique role, right, in sharing the gospel. Um, the ones that come off the top of my head uh, a lot of times in Roman Catholic theology is centered around you know, St. Paul, St. John, St. Thomas, all these people, right? They are given the title of saint. And because of this, it would be easy to assume that when Paul says that the equipping of the saints for ministry is going to take place, that Paul is referring to just kind of these special leaders in the Christian movement that we read about in the Bible. However, this is not how Scripture defines the word saints. Saints comes from the Greek hagios, which means sacred or holy. And what this means is that anyone who has a status of being holy is referred to as a saint. I want to take a look at some instances in the New Testament of how the Greek word hagios that we translate as saints is used, because this will be very helpful for us. Acts chapter 9, verse 13, this is right after uh, Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus just reached out to Ananias uh, to give him some direction. And Ananias answers in verse 13, he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now, one thing that we can point out that Paul himself is very explicit about in his letters is that before he had his encounter with Christ and he was a practicing Pharisee, he persecuted Christians every which way. It was utterly terrible. And this is what Ananias is recalling here that, hey, Paul has done so much evil to your saints at Jerusalem. Clearly, this is, this is talking about the Christian believers, just your, your normal run-of-the-mill Christian believers that Paul was persecuting. Let's look at another instance in Acts chapter 9 again, verse 32 through 35. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So, notice how the text differentiates between the saints that Peter's going to see, and then the non-believing residents that ultimately turn to the Lord. Saints, and then these residents of these cities that turn to the Lord, they're in contrast, right? You have the residents that saw the healing that Jesus did on Aeneas, and they turn to God, which means they now believe. That's contrasted with the saints, the believers that Peter is going down to the city to see. Here's another example. Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11. 
says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So here, once again, Paul is describing some of the terrible things that he did. And he says that he did these terrible things to many of the saints. He put them in prison. He put them to death. Here's another example. Last one, I believe. It's going to be Philippians chapter 4, verse 21 through 22. It says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So here, Paul calls every believer in Jesus a saint. He also points out that there are saints or believers in the household of Caesar as well. And this is a cool little tidbit here. Uh, the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges points this out in their commentary. Uh, they quote the they of Caesar's household. They say that these are probably slaves and freed men attached to the palace. So saints here is in this verse in Philippians 4 is also referring to lowly believers that were slaves and servants to the Caesar. Now there is many more instances of how saints are used in the New Testament that we could look at. But I think you see the point here. Biblically speaking, saints does not solely refer to a small group of distinguished believers. Rather, it refers to all believers in Christ because they are all made holy through Jesus. So with that in mind, we are reminded that Paul says that these leaders in the gifts that are given to the church, that they are given in order to equip the saints, which is all believers, for the work of ministry. Doesn't that sound fun? I, I already know, I already know that this revelation may drive some of you crazy. These are the parts of the Bible that for me for so long, I absolutely hated reading because I'm, I'm definitely one of those people where I could go into church just kind of keep my head down, get to my seat, sing the worship, listen to the sermon, do the studies, all that good stuff, and kind of walk out. I'm, I, I'm very content with kind of just keeping to my own. I'm, I just have a weird personality right? That, like that. And I know that's not the best personality to have, right? Because I'm, I'm in the body of Christ. I need to be communicating and being in fellowship with my brothers and sisters. And so hearing Paul say, hey, uh, your you know, pastors and your teachers and the evangelists and all these people, they're here so that they can equip you to do ministry. <laughs> That's always fun, right? That, that means that we have a burden cast on us. And I don't mean burden in a negative way. I mean, there is an expectation and a responsibility for all believers in the body of Christ to do ministry. Now, I, I know some of you listening may be thinking, oh, well, I don't know how to preach. <laughs> Like fat chants are going to get me up on a stage for 40 minutes and do ministry. But I think we need to take a closer look at how ministry is used and understood in Scripture. So what exactly does it mean? Well, it means that every believer is expected to share the gospel 
and minister to those who are lost and or serve others through the Spirit of Christ. Now, why do I say it like that? Well, for one, the Greek word that we translate as ministry, it has a range of meaning, a range of meaning that encompasses service, serving others, and the outwardly work towards the gospel. The Greek word that we translate as ministry is the Greek word diakonia, and it's used in various places to mean various things. Here's some examples. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 40. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So serving here is actually the same word, diaconia, that we use for ministry. But here it refers to the act of serving others with hospitality and with food. Very interesting. Let's look at Acts 6, starting in the very first verse. It says this, Now at this time, as the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint developed on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what's cool here is there are actually two acts of ministry, of service, being mentioned here. And both come from the same word, diaconia. One act of diaconia is the serving of food and hospitality. The other act of diaconia is the sharing of the gospel. Because we're told that there was some disagreements with how the food was being served. This was a, an operation that was ongoing, and there's a disagreement with how it was being served. And so they brought their discrepancy to the disciples. The disciples said, hey, uh, look, we, we can't sit here and read your, your, your food service, right? We can't do that. We need to be out preaching the gospel. That's what Jesus commissioned us to do. So go ahead, pick some wise men among you, and they'll be the ones that will be put in charge of this serving operation that you, ha that you have going on. But for us, the disciples, we're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. Two acts of diaconia, two acts of service and ministry, but one is seen in the lens of serving others with food and hospitality. The other is seen as actively sharing the gospel. Both have their importance, but notice how neither one was neglected. The apostles did not want their call of diaconia, of ministry to be hindered by their problems taking place, but they also didn't want the ministry, the service, the diaconia of food to stop working either, right? They, they did not neglect either of these. Both are considered service. Both, in the literal sense, are considered ministry. They come from the same word for ministry, but both have completely different modes of outreach. Both look completely different. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 12, 
I actually really love this. It really helps support this point that I'm trying to make. Paul is speaking about the diversity of the gifts of the Spirit, and he says this in verse 4 through 6. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So once again, the word service here. Paul says there are a variety of service. The word service comes from the Greek word diakonia. Paul is saying very clearly that there are varieties of ministry, of service that can be found in the body of Christ. There are many different ways to serve and to minister to those who are lost and to serve and to minister to those who are already within the body of Christ. So with this knowledge of what ministry entails, when we look back at what Paul says here in Ephesians 4, it becomes clear that as believers, we are tasked with the work of ministry that can be better understood as serving others through the Spirit of Christ. And this does not necessarily mean that you are tasked with going and preaching and shouting the gospel and uh, going on stage and doing all of these things. You may be better gifted to serve locally at your church or to serve at a local community gathering or talking about Jesus in the Bible with your friend group or people at work. However this may look for you, only you know and only God knows the ways in which your gifts can best serve and minister to those who are lost or to those who are already in the body of Christ. But then for others, you may actually be tasked with partaking in kind of the more common understanding of ministry. You may be tasked with going out and verbally sharing the gospel, telling everyone who will listen, going out to street corners, going to schools, going to colleges, going to workplaces, going to uh, marches, going to political events, and just sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. You may be called to go up on stage and speak. You may be called to lead a small group or to teach sessions. or you, The amount of things that can be done is endless, but whatever it may be, it cannot be denied that all believers, all the saints, are expected to do good works of service and works for the gospel. We are all expected to partake in ministry. And it is the job of the leaders of the body of Christ that are listed in Ephesians 4 verse 11 to make that message known and to make that message utterly clear. The church leaders are also given to us for another reason, and that is to build up the body of Christ. Another translation would say to perfect the body of Christ. Now, this implies that in its current state, the body of Christ has not yet reached its fullness. In some sense, there are missing pieces or broken pieces that are in need of spirit-led wisdom and guidance. And this means that there is work to do. 
This means that the body of Christ should not grow stagnant or comfortable. But the good news is this, that apparently this goal of perfection in the body of Christ is attainable in some sense. Can we look at the rest of this Ephesians 4 passage that we're reading? In verse 13, Paul says, hey, uh, look, we were given these leaders so that they can help us go out and minister and build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The, the goal is that the body of Christ will attain the unity of faith in the knowledge of Jesus that is at the level of the fullness that Christ embodies. Admittedly, that is a goal that seems impossible to achieve. Probably is impossible to achieve in some sense. But this shows, at the very least, how important the leaders that we choose in our gatherings are. This shows at the very least how utterly important it is that we choose and maintain the highest quality of leaders that we can possibly have. Because we see this throughout the entire New Testament. What we see is very strict and difficult requirements for elders and those in church leadership. And it seems when looking through those requirements that they're almost impossible for any man to follow and fully embody at all times. It, I mean, it, it, it really does seem very hard to fully embody each and every one of those requirements to their fullest. However, for a goal as steep and as crucial as having unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus that measures up to the stature that Jesus himself hold, it makes sense why these requirements for leaders are so stringent. And I think we do a great disservice to the body of Christ when we do not strictly hold our leadership to these standards. Because when they fall short, the rest of the body of Christ falls short. When they are not living up to these standards, the body of Christ suffers in some sense. It's not made perfected. In Paul's eyes, look, it, I know that this can sound really harsh, and, and it may, I may be sounding like, uh, like, whoa, Dante, uh, it's not that big of a deal, man. You know, it's just church. You know, none of us are perfect. Uh, you know, we, we all make mistakes, but look, in Paul's eyes, we're not just talking about a church building being run poorly. We're not talking about, you know, oh, you know, my pastor cheated on his wife and now we have really bad PR, but, you know, it's okay because we're just going to move on from this. We're not talking about those types of things. We're not talking just about, oh, uh, my pastor really isn't educated in this area. So unfortunately, you know, we're not learning as good as we could, but, you know, he's trying his best. We're not talking about that being the worst thing that can happen to the body of Christ. We're talking about the dwelling place of God. I want us to see this at the end of Ephesians 2. 
I mean, I pointed this out so many times, and I hope it didn't fall on deaf ears because when I saw what Paul wrote in the implications of that, this is massive. At the end of Ephesians 2, Paul calls the body of Christ the church. He calls the church the new temple in the dwelling place of God. I want that to sink in, how important that is. Oftentimes, we, we, we love singing songs about how God dwells in us, right? We sing those out. It makes us feel good. We, we love to think, oh, man, you know, uh, your heart is a home, and God just wants you to open the door for him to come on in. We love talking about these things, and we romanticize them, but we miss out on the eternal implications of what that really means. Paul likens the church to the temple in God's dwelling place so that we can call back to what that meant for Israel when they had a physical temple where God dwelled. The way that the temple was kept and the way that it was maintained was held to the highest standard you could possibly imagine. And we've already covered the the importance of this in a previous episode. But when we're looking at the dwelling place of God, this dwelling place needs to be kept holy. Just as Paul quoted a few verses before from Psalm 68, how gifts were given to God. And as we learned, those gifts were the Levites. And the Levites were the ones that were to take care of the temple to make sure that it was being properly ran in a way that did not allow sin and shame and defilement to take place. In in Paul likens the leaders that Christ gave to us with how the Levites were viewed when they ran God's temple. Because if God's temple was not upheld to the utmost degree, there is a very real possibility that God would no longer dwell there. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, what happens when God no longer dwells with his people? They fall into immense suffering, poverty, famine, exile, slavery. That's what happens when God no longer dwells. So Paul isn't just saying that the church is the new temple, the new dwelling place to make us feel good and to to make us uh, have this romanticized idea of what it means for God to dwell within the body of Christ. Paul is telling us this so we can open our eyes and go, oh, this is this is serious. We we are now the temple. We are now God's dwelling place. And and thank the Lord that we have a high priest in Christ that paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. But nevertheless, Paul is making it very clear that the leaders that we are given in verse 11 are there to maintain this new temple, this new dwelling place of God. Those who are in church leadership, if any of you listen to this podcast, let me tell you, this role that you have been given is of the utmost importance. You are tasked with not only leading God's children, not only building them up and equipping them to go out and do ministry, but you are tasked with keeping care of God's temple taking care of God's dwelling place. And this requires caretakers that possess the highest degree of wisdom, knowledge, and Christ-like behavior. 
Otherwise, this goal of unity in the faith and knowledge that matches up to the stature of Christ's fullness, otherwise that will never be achieved. If we continue to elect and erect poor leaders that are not equipped just because they speak good, just because they have charisma, if we continue to do these types of things in the body of Christ, it is going to utterly destroy. It is going to tear down the very thing that they are tasked with upholding and building and perfecting. Those in the roles of leadership have the most important role. And Paul points out in verse 14 another very important reason why we need this leadership and why they need to be skilled and holy and walking in the example of Christ. In verse 14, he says, We have all this so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here's the truth. This was obviously prevalent in the time that Paul was writing this, but it's obviously prevalent uh, a year after, 20 years after, 1,000 years after, in 2023, years later, like we are in today. There are always going to be people and powers and principalities that are going to try and fool believers. They're going to try and pull them away. They're going to try and cause disunity. And they're going to try and sow distrust in the knowledge that you have been given from the word of God. It's obvious and it's clear in Paul's time it was things like Gnosticism, saying that Christ didn't actually come in the flesh. And Paul refutes that here in Ephesians 4. But for us today, it looks completely different. For us today, it's being told that you can live your life however you want. Yes, you, you were born a man or a woman, but you can change that and then you can force other people to go along with it. Uh, yes, you can kill your children in the womb, even though that's sacrificing your children just like the Canaanites did to Molech in the Old Testament. These, these types of things are nothing that should be unexpected. There's always going to be deceit and liars and evil people that try and sway you away from Jesus Christ. But if every church, if every gathering of believers was actually equipped with the quality of leader that is needed to uphold God's new temple, these types of things would be nipped in the bud. And we would be strengthened and we would grow better in our knowledge to know when we see lies and we see deceit and we see things that are trying to break us apart, we'll be able to look at that and go, hmm, that's pretty foolish. I hope you're able to see from Paul's argumentation here in Ephesians 4 how important these leaders are. And not just that they're important. I'm not saying this so we can elevate them as some sort of new Moses character that we just can't do anything on our own. I'm more so pointing out that it is so important that we, that we put the right people in these positions because the body of Christ depends on it. 